Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe at brightnews.com as well as anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. Many guests uh, you have seen this far on our Acons reboot have been previous guests on the previous iteration of the show. But with this reboot, we dreamed big. And uh, who were the people that we, we talked about? Who were the people we really wanted to pursue uh, as guests? Well, today's guest was at the top of my list. So very excited to have with us Mark Robinson. Mark Robinson is the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina uh, and a national conservative voice. He is the author of We Are the Majority, The Life and Passions of a Patriot. But he probably first came to national prominence and national attention as the viral video voice uh, when he spoke to his local city council. Let's look at that now. I've heard a whole lot of people in here talking tonight about this group and that group, and domestic violence, and blacks, these minorities and that minority. What I want to know is, when are you all going to start standing up for the majority? And here's who the majority is. I'm the majority. I'm a law-abiding citizen who's never shot anybody, never committed a serious crime, never committed a felony. I've never done anything like that. But it seems like every time we have one of these shootings, Nobody wants to blame, put the blame where it goes, which is at the shooter's feet. You want to put it at my feet. You want to turn around and restrict my right, constitutional right that's spelled out in black and white. You want to restrict my right to buy a firearm and protect myself from some of the very people you're talking about in here tonight. It's ridiculous. I don't think Rod Serling could come up with a better script. It does not make any sense. The law-abiding citizens of this community and many communities around this country, we're the first ones taxed and the last ones considered and the first ones punished when things like this happens because our rights are the ones that are being taken away. That's the reason why I came down here today. Gun show or no gun show, NRA or no NRA. I'm here to stand up for the law-abiding citizens of this community because I'm going to tell you that what's going to happen. You can take the guns away from us all you want to. You all write a law, I follow the law, I'll bring my guns down here, I'll turn them in. But here's what's going to happen. The Crips and the Bloods on the other side of town, they're not going to turn their guns in. They're going to hold on to them. And what's going to happen when you have to send the police down there to go take them? The police can barely enforce the law as it is. It's what I see, we demonize the police, criminalize and, and, and vilify the police, and we make the criminals into victims. And we're talking about restricting guns? How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that when the police department's already hamstrung? You're not going to be able to go down here and take these guns from these criminals. So the criminals are going to hold on to their guns. They're still going to have them. They're still going to break in my house, and they're still going to shoot me with them. And guess who's going to be the one that suffers? It's going to be me. Well, I'm here to tell you tonight, it is not going to happen without a fight. And when I say fight... Wow. Welcome to the show, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Hey, how you doing? Good to be here. I'm doing very well. Great to have you with us. Now, what inspired you to give this speech, and did you expect it to have the impact that it did? Uh, well, it's kind of a complicated story. 
and uh, it's kind of it's kind of I won't say it's a long story, but I basically went to that meeting on the kind of spur of the moment. I found out about the meeting the day of the meeting, and uh, just to give the give it a little context, uh, I uh, I was not doing any politics in person at all. All my politics was uh, done through social media. I was very busy at that time in my life, going to school full time, working full time. My plan was to be a history professor, and I still want to do that at some point. But uh, I went to that meeting because I just felt like, you know, I talked about politics all the time online. Here they are having this meeting, the crucial meeting about the preservation of our gun rights. And uh, I knew exactly what the meeting was going to be about. And so I felt the need to go, but I didn't plan on speaking. Only when I went and heard some of the things that I heard that night really got me. Uh, it really upset me a lot and uh, maybe quite angry, to be quite honest. And uh, I, I, that's when I decided to get up and speak. And I guess the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, you mentioned the book. The, I, I lay out the entire story in the book, and uh, we certainly love for people to get the book and read the story. I think it's uh, I think it's a very inspirational story, if it is my own story, if I do say so myself. Now, why did you write We Are the Majority? Well, here it is. We live in a society now where if you don't get out and tell your story, somebody else will. And, we've, yes, and I, I'm just going to be plain with you. There are a lot of people out there that don't like what we say. There are a lot of people out there that disagree with our message. Uh, and I don't mind people disagreeing with our message. And I, I don't mind just people not liking what we say. But this is the thing that I, uh, I have uh, absolute 100% uh, intolerance for. I, I don't like it when people twist our words. And I don't like it when people tell outright untruths about us. And so we wanted to write down in black and white uh, who we are, where we came from, and what we believe in. We want to tell our own story. And uh, so that is the reason why we sat down and wrote this book. We wrote this book to tell our own story and to inspire others who think uh, the way we do, and even some who don't think the way we do. Uh, wanted to tell them about why we believe the way we believe and uh, wanted to set it down on record on our terms, not someone else's. That's absolutely right. Now, you wrote a great deal about the domestic violence that you witnessed in your home growing up. How did being forced to witness such violence affect you then and perhaps now as you've grown to be a husband and father yourself? Uh, and how do we address this sad reality that many in the Black community face? Well, I think for me, what it inspired in me, it inspired a great sense of, uh, of uh, fair play, of fighting for what's right for standing up for those who are being victimized, uh, for standing up for what for what is right. You know, when I used to witness my my father uh, beat my mother, that was one thing I, I thought was most wrong about. Here's this man who's so big and strong, and he's using his strength, number one, for the wrong, in the wrong way. And he's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's basically bullying my mom. And uh, this is it, it's something that stuck with me my entire life. And I think that's the reason why I have such a, such a strong sense of fighting for what's right because I witnessed it firsthand in my own home. And let me preface that by, by saying this as well. I think uh, uh, you mentioned something that's very important. I think uh, far too often in, in black communities, uh, we don't deal with these issues openly and honestly. Uh, we don't talk about them. We don't talk about how they come into being. Uh, we don't, we don't share uh, quite the same way as maybe in some other communities. And I think it's high time that we do that. I tell people all the time that the, the reason why we came out uh, on the other side of that issue 
uh, as well as we did was number one was because my mom uh, was uh, very secure in her faith and shared that faith with us and uh, prayed protection around our hearts and our minds uh, because of that issue. The second thing was uh, we had family, uh, brothers, sisters, uh, my mom, after my father passed away, uh, we spent many a day sitting around talking about those issues and we never hid anything from each other and we were never silent mm. and talking and expressing our feelings about them. And I think because we were able to do that, I think that that was our form of therapy to help us get through those things. Uh, but you're absolutely right. That's one issue in our community that we really need to speak up uh, about and speak up against. And I think we're seeing that happening more and more. And that's a good thing. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned the role of faith in your upbringing, because that's another, I think, failing. I'm not fond of the term the black church because I believe that Jesus yes. died for everyone. But as an historic institution that got us through a number of struggles, I do feel like there's a failing in the black communities, especially with uh, the church in addressing the, these issues from the pulpit addressing cohabitation, abortion, the music that we listen to, the movies mm -hmm. that we watch, a lot of these issues. And I think that as you, to your point, um, domestic violence and some of these other issues are issues that we need to be talking about. They're not political issues. These are kingdom issues. You're absolutely right about the church. Uh, I, in my book, I make that statement in my book. Uh, there was a time when I was at work and uh, a gentleman asked me, he said, you go to a white church or a black church? And I looked at him and said, no, it's brick. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I meant that in a facetious way. But, you know, when it comes to the church, we really have to take a look and we really have to temper ourselves. We have to understand that even though we may go to a church where 95 percent of the people or even maybe 100 percent of the people in the church are black, we have to understand that we need to continue to put Christ before our color. And uh, when we don't do that, we lose our way. And I think in a lot of ways, we've done that. Uh, we, we put our color before Christ and it's caused us to lose our way. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've lost sight of those crucial issues that we need to be highlighting through the church. Uh, things like the protection of life in the womb, things like yes. domestic violence, things like standing up for our constitutional rights and, and making sure that our that our faith leads us to do the right thing at the ballot box. We've forgotten that to a large extent because we put other things in front of us. So when it comes to Christianity and it comes to the church, we need to stay focused more on Christ than on our color, even if our churches are, are heavily uh, segregated. And, and in some places they still are. We have to be honest about that. You're absolutely right about that. Now, you wrote, quote, one of the misconceptions liberals and progressives have about me is that I don't like black people. Nothing could be further from the truth. The problem is that I am disgusted by people on the left who mischaracterize the story of black Americans, end quote. How and why has the left mischaracterized our story in your view? Well, I'm just going to be playing with you. Leftists are paternal racists. Leftists yeah. are people who look at look at black people and believe that we're weak, that we're ineffective. They always present us from a from a from perspective of victimization, of, yes. of a woe is me, uh, head down. Uh, oh, Lord, have mercy. Look how they do us. That is not our story. Our story is one of strength and victory. We have overcome so much in this nation, all the way from our, the inception of the West African slave trade, all the way to the civil rights movement, all the way to the current condition we find ourselves in now. We are overcomers. We are, And we're not overcomers because we have begged anyone for anything. We are overcomers because we have survived the absolute worst that has been thrown at us, and we are still standing, and we are still standing strong. 
but we will not continue to stand strong if we continue to turn our power over to those who wish to keep keep us in a position of uh, submission. And that's what the left wants to do. They want to keep us in a position of, of submission. They want us to stay poor and in the ghetto and feeling like victims because they know if we stand up and act victorious in our own homes and our communities and our cities and in this nation, that things will change for the worse for them. And that's not what they want. That's absolutely right. Now, would you take us through the decision to run for one of the most powerful and prestigious offices in state government, despite having no political experience? Well, you know, we took a look at it and uh, I decided to run for office. And uh, when we were looking at offices to run for, uh, I was looking at mayor or city council, a number of things. And uh, my wife came up with the idea and said, hey, why don't you run for lieutenant governor? And at the time, I said, you know, I know a few things that the lieutenant governor does. I said, but let me look at the job description. I looked at the job description and I thought, hey, uh, I think this job suits me well. And uh, I think what I don't know about this job, I can certainly learn. And, uh, you know, from the moment I decided to do it, it just felt right. Uh, there were some folks who tried to encourage me to run for the Senate uh, a few months back, uh, about a year ago. And uh, we decided against that. And we decided against that because it didn't feel right. I, it never settled right with my spirit, with my mind, with my heart. But when we decided to run for lieutenant governor, uh, it felt right. And we knew we were stepping into an arena uh, where we could, uh, ex you know, we, we could fight for our passions. One of the things that set me over the top was when I found out that I could, you know, have a spot on the state school board and speak up for education. Uh, so we definitely, uh, it just felt right to us. And we knew that uh, the undertaking that we were going on was not just uh, an earthly journey, just not just a secular journey. We really felt like God had put us on this path, that we were answering his call, that we knew that he would be there. And whatever came out of it, we knew it would be good in his, his sight and in his will. So we decided to do it. We are beginning to see more Black and Hispanic candidates find success as Republicans. Uh, we've seen Alan West, Myra Flores, Tim Scott, and many others. You, for example, are the first African-American to be a lieutenant governor in North Carolina. Why do you think the GOP is becoming uh, increasingly diversified? Well, quite honestly, it's because more people are catching on to the fact that conservative principles actually work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, right here in North Carolina, I can give you a short story of North Carolina. North Carolina has been Democrat, Democrat controlled since the Civil War uh, up till 2010. Uh, right before 2010, our state was $3.4 billion in debt to the federal government. The economy was stagnant. Teachers hadn't had a raise in six years and, and businesses were not coming here to do business. Republicans and conservatives took over in 2010. And since that time, we're no longer in debt to the federal government. We have a huge surplus and businesses are clamoring hand over fist to come to the state. Why? Because we have uh, put conservative policies, policies and principles into action that are yielding, yielding a desired result. People are seeing that. People saw that when Donald Trump was in office, when Donald yes. Trump ran for office and made those promises and then delivered through conservative yes. principles. People saw that and they came running. Ron DeSantis is another good example yeah. down in Florida. He is applying those conservative principles and they are working in the lives of average, ordinary citizens every day. People are seeing it. They're hearing it. And those folks that are living in those communities that have been poor and broke for 50 years are saying, hey, wait a minute. 
we need to we need to make a change. And I think we're going to see more and more of it happen across the state, across the nation. And, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because, you know, going back to uh, the point that we were making just a few minutes ago about uh, how uh, we are strongly a, a people of faith, you would think as people get closer to the scriptures, they would see uh, the conservative values that are written. I mean, that's what I grew up in San Francisco uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and so we were a very liberal Democrat household. Um, and it wasn't be until I became a Christian in college and really started looking into the scriptures that I realized, wait a minute, you know, I mean, I was always pro-life, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, wait a minute, it's this, wait, wait a minute, the, the Bible says this. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a big disconnect that we're seeing. And to your point, um, I have, I, I don't think that San Francisco has had a Democrat mayor since the mid sixties, uh, Oakland. I don't know that I've ever seen that there's been a Democrat, I mean, a Republican mayor there, Chicago, all of these strongholds. Why has no one connected the dots? It just seems like, you know, pretty obvious to me. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been talking about this a lot. There are two things in this country right now. Uh, two different uh, entities in this country that are way off. And one of them is the government and the other is the church. And both of those entities are off because the people who are in charge in those areas, they're both off as well. And that would be politicians and pastors. Uh, politicians, for to many of them are no longer falling against the tenets of our government. And what's the tenets of our government? Our constitution. They want to ignore or fundamentally transform our constitution and in some cases get rid of it. They don't want to follow our, our, our rule of law anymore, which is the Constitution. They want to take crucial parts out of it or ignore crucial parts of that Constitution. The same is true in the church. We have pastors now that are, are basically giving their, their congregations redacted Bibles that are not teaching the whole word of God. Those issues that are in the Bible that they don't want to, quote, touch because it may offend their parishioners mm -hmm. or it may cost them some trouble. They don't want to present those things to their, their parishioners. So they're finding versions of the Bible that do not uh, touch on those issues or may give a version that may be more palatable instead of giving them the real word. And I think that's that's part of the problem. You know, this country was founded on uh, the principles of Christianity. Notice what yes. I said, the principles of Christianity. Yes. I found it on Christianity itself, but the principles thereof. And when we talk about those days, you're talking about people who were Bible literate. Mm -hmm. We have a, a wide swath of us out here now uh, who are not Bible literate, who are not mm -hmm. listening to the Bible. We listen more to MTV and CBS and ABC and CBS than we do to the word of God. And so it's no mystery that people aren't making that connection because people are drawn away from the Bible. And many of those who are reading the Bible are reading somewhat redacted versions of it. Or this whole tendency that particularly in our community, my pastor says, or this or that, rather than the word of God says, That's right. people can lead you astray. So right. staying in that word itself and not, because as you said, there are reasons why people are not preaching the gospel and to see uh, quote unquote churches. Now we know the church is the people, but quote unquote churches where they are, um, having drag queen events. I mean, drag queen Absolutely. bingo and that kind of stuff. Where in the Bible do you find any kind of, well, Jesus was tolerant. He, he may have eaten with sinners and he may have eaten with prostitutes, but he didn't put a stamp on their lifestyle. He didn't, put exactly a, he didn't approve that. You got to change. You can't come. You are supposed to come to Jesus as you are. You're not supposed to stay as you are. Mm -hmm. 
you you come as you are, but there's change that is required. That is right. There's that change is right. that is required. And that's the part that no one wants to talk about. Speaking of change, you have been quite open about the abortion that you and your wife had when you were much younger, saying, yes. quote, it was the hardest decision we have ever made. And sadly, we made the wrong one, end quote. Mm -hmm. You now call abortion morally wrong. What mm -hmm. caused your evolution on this important issue? Again, it was faith. Uh, at the time when this happened, you know, I was, uh, I was, I don't know how you want to describe it, but uh, my faith, my faith, uh, I was just beginning my faith walk and really was not very strong in my faith walk. I look back on those days and those were back in the days where I had even a tough time even saying Jesus Christ out loud to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a, I was a Christian, certainly a confessed Christian. If somebody had asked me, do you believe in God? I would have said yes. But was I following Christ the way I should have? Was I following his commandments? Had I committed myself to him? Absolutely not. And had I, had I studied the word? Absolutely not. And because just what we just talked about, because I had not studied the word and because I had not given myself to him, I was prone to make the wrong decisions. And I made those wrong decisions based on pop culture listening to those people in the community, listening yeah. to what they say on the television, listening to the folks on the news media, listening to the people out of Hollywood, not hearkening to the voice of God, not hearkening to his will or his word, but hearkening to the world. And that's the reason why I made that awful decision, because I wasn't hearkening to God's word. I was hearkening, hearkening to the, the world's. And so uh, once I became more acquainted with my faith and became more settled in my faith and rooted in my faith and became to understand the, the, the word of God and read the word of God, I understood what a terrible decision I had made. Plus, even before that, uh, it weighed on my mind heavily. And, 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 and the more I became spiritually in tune, the more it weighed on me. And I spent many years suffering about it in silence. And uh, those folks that, that so-called discovered it, even though I was the one who brought it up on social media, uh, they, you know, they did me a great favor <laughs> because uh, I, I love to tell people the story about it. I, to me, it's like being a drug addict who is reformed. Nobody can tell you the dangers of drugs more than somebody who was out on the streets homeless because of it. Nobody can tell you the dangers of gangbanging more than somebody who spent years in prison because of it. And nobody can tell you what it's like to regret having an abortion other than somebody who's actually had one and been through that experience. So I think we're going to be able to bless many people with that story and keep many people from falling into that trap. And I think it's so important that you share it for a, a few reasons. One is there is a myth that abortion is healthcare and that uh, it's just a procedure, blah, 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 blah. No one talks about the lingering psychological mm -hmm. effects, the lingering regrets for years right. that just torture and torment people who have That's been through right. it. And secondly, as a man, because everyone talks about it's a woman's body, it's a woman's right. Um, I think the man was there, perhaps, yes. you know? So why doesn't he have a say in this? How come it, his wishes aren't taken into consideration? I know a lot of people talk about, well, the boyfriend coerced the woman into having an abortion, blah, 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 blah. But there are men who genuinely want these babies and do not want their girlfriends or wives to abort. And so we need to start listening to men and the regret and the stories such as yours as we discuss this uh, issue in the community. 
That's exactly right. Everybody has a voice in this issue because this issue is not just about the man or the woman. This issue is really about the life that's in that womb and what we do uh, in regards to protecting that life. And everybody should have a voice and everybody should be able to speak up. Plus, it's important to draw our young men into these conversations because ultimately what we want is this. We want people to think before the baby. We want them to think before the action. We want them to sit down and think, you know, uh, if if I don't want to find myself in this situation, then maybe I should be a little bit more responsible with my body before That's I make those decisions. And of course, we know these things are going to happen, but uh, we really want people to have those conversations. And we, we want young men to be part of those conversations because uh, it's not a, a, a him or her. It's a him and her issue. And so we need to make sure that we're talking about these things openly and honest with uh, with every all parties involved. And of course, that includes the man as well. To follow up on that, it is estimated that 20 million black babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade, a number equaling the entire black population of the United States in 1961. We are still only 13 percent of the population. Mm-hmm. How do we better address this scourge in the black community? I think what we do is we have to go back and we have to look at it from historical uh, perspective. Uh, why was Planned Parenthood started? Planned Parenthood right. was started on, on, on issues on the issue of something that Margaret Sanger called human weeds. The Negro Project. Right, yeah. right. Who are, Let's who get are the black human, minister to go and do weeds. it. Human yes. weeds were poor, uh, poor whites, or what, what was considered poor white trash, as they put it. And all Negroes <laughs> were, were human weeds, uh, those people that were physically inferior and, and Negroes. Uh, and so we have to look at that. And then we have to look at the current perspective of how it stands now. How many of those abortion clinics uh, are located in black communities? Yes. That's what we need to look at. And then we need to look at those numbers, the numbers that bear out the truth. And the truth of the matter is that Planned Parenthood has been targeting black babies since its inception. I've been targeting them for death since their inception. And we need to make sure that we stop that and that we need to remove that scourge from our neighborhoods because uh, black children are the ones that are being targeted. And it's interesting that you say that, too, because now we're starting to hear from black workers at Planned Parenthood saying that they're being passed over for promotions, which, you know, not that I would ever want to see uh anyone be promoted at, at Planned Parenthood, but that the uh entity that. When you build something on a racist foundation, how can it not be racist itself? And we're starting to see some of the internal things where they're saying that there are people who, uh, you know, that that black workers or employees at uh, Planned Parenthood are suffering from uh, racial discrimination. So Mm -hmm. why would you be surprised at that? Well, I, I haven't heard those statistics, but it certainly would not surprise me. Uh, given the fact that the Planned Parenthood is a basically is a, a, a organization built on racism, built on a racist ideology, uh, built on a classist ideology. And uh, so that doesn't surprise me at all, because, uh, quite frankly, I, I consider the organization to be quite wicked. It is. It is. Now, uh, 
You wrote, quote, people walk among us who have done things no player in the NBA, no Hollywood actor would ever consider doing. They did those things not to become enriched, but for honor. We don't have any veterans. We aren't going, if we don't have any veterans, we aren't going to have a nation, end quote. Sadly, however, we are seeing the U.S. Army giving veterans recommendations that they go on food stamps, soldiers selling plasma to make ends meet, and a suicide rate uh, that continues to be higher than that of the civilian population. Why are the people who risk their lives to serve this country not being treated as they deserve? I would submit to you it's because of something uh, that my mother taught me years ago. You know, my mother taught my mother was a custodian and she received the custodian's pay. But when my mom got her paycheck, my mom had something uh, that that our government is sadly lacking. She had her priorities in order. My mom didn't go out and buy fancy dresses, get her hair done, her nails done. My mom paid the rent. She paid, bought food. She bought us clothes, school supplies, uh, paid the necessaries when she got paid. Our federal government does not have its priorities in order. Right now, our federal government is more concerned with trying to teach our soldiers about being woke than it is how to teach our, <laughs> our soldiers how to fight the enemy. And uh, right now, our federal government is more concerned with people who are crossing over our border illegally than they are with people who have given their lives and sacrificed for this nation to protect it. Uh, our federal government's priorities are out of whack, and they have been out of whack for a long time. We need to ensure that the people who fight for this nation, who have served this nation, people, who, the family members of those who have died of fighting for this nation to protect those nations, those people need to be at the top of the list, not at the middle, not at the bottom. They need to be at the top of the list. When we talk, we start talking about taking care of folks, making sure that they're taken care of, making sure that they're not homeless, making sure that they want for nothing. It's not a matter of the money. It's about how we spend the money. And right now, our priorities are out of order. The federal government is spending money on things it never should be spending money on instead of spending it on those people who have fought hard to protect this nation. And when we correct that, we'll see those problems go away. That's absolutely right. I've got one last question for you. If you're just joining us, we are talking to North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. You suggest replacing school boards, uh, the state superintendent of education and the local uh, school systems with a single entity or even a single individual. And of course, you know, labeling pa parents as domestic terrorists for just speaking up for the garbage and filth that's, that's in their children's literature. Why so and how would you go about accomplishing that? Well, you know, I don't know. And I don't know if uh, eliminating the state school board, I don't know if that is the answer. Uh, I'm not sure if eliminating what we call here in, the, in North Carolina DPI, eliminating DPI is the answer. But I do know that this is the beginning of the answer. The beginning of the answer is to bring in people who genuine, genuinely want to educate our children in a classical yes. sense who want to give our children the skills that are going to be necessary so that they can succeed inside the classroom and more importantly, succeed outside the classroom using the skills that they have learned inside that classroom. Bringing those people to the table and charting a course to make education in our state as great as possible. That is the beginning of how we fix it. Is eliminating the state school board the answer? Maybe. Is eliminating DPI? the answer? Maybe. Is leaving those entities in place the answer? Maybe. 
but it starts with having a consensus of people at a table who are there not for their own entities, not there for the teachers union, not there to stand up for their job on the state school board, not there to stand up for their job and their bureaucrats at DPI, not there to stand up for their folks on the school board back home, but there to stand up to ensure that the students and parents and teachers of North Carolina have a healthy school system that are going to teach our children what they need to succeed in the classroom. Amen. And I, I agree. Partnering with parents. Parents have to have a say. And I have to tell you, I homeschooled my three children because I felt like uh, my kids, we were living in the Bay Area at the time. And I just thought, you know, our school system doesn't have robotics. My son did. My oldest son was in robotics the whole time that he was in school. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they didn't have access to some of these extracurriculars that more affluent school districts had. So mm -hmm. parents have to have absolutely have a say. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I said you better believe it. any that, to have that excellent school system. The number one tenet needs to be that parents are in control of their children's educational destiny. That is the number one tenet of any great school system. Again, we've been chatting with North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. How do we continue to follow your career and what's next for you? I'm on a number of platforms. I'm on Twitter. I'm on True Social Media. I'm on Facebook. Uh, just look at my name, Mark Keith Robinson, on any of those entities. Uh, you can also purchase my book on a number of platforms, chiefly being Amazon. Uh, we want everybody to go out and get a copy of that so they can read all about us and find out who we are. Again, it's been our pleasure to talk with Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. His book is We Are the Majority. So please go out and... Uh, purchase that. And it's been our pleasure to have a discussion with you. Best wishes to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Our second guest today is Brandon Showalter. He is a journalist for the Christian Post and the host of the Christian Post podcast, Generation Indoctrination. Much of his writing and commentary exposes the effort to promote transgenderism to our youth. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you, Marie. Good to be with you. You've said that when you became a full-time reporter, you had only a casual idea about the transgender issue, stating, quote, yet in early 2017, when I found out about the marked shift toward all things within uh, tra uh, all things trans within the contemporary LGBT politics and the experimental medicalization of gender that was being pushed on minors, specifically what puberty blockers were, I was a changed man. Life was never the same after that, end quote. What was it about puberty blockers that affected you so that you became somewhat of a crusader against them? Well, at base, it was just kind of, it's a medical scandal. And I have always thought that medical scandals are just particularly horrific because doctors carry such great social trust in society and to violate that oath that they used to take to first do no harm. Uh, that has always sort of really bothered me. But what I liken it to was when I was a teenager, I read a cover story. It was Boris Deary, uh, a Reader's Digest story where it was talking about female genital mutilation. And for some reason, even as a teenager, that really affected me hearing about how young girls in Africa um, were having their, their genitals mutilated in service to this dogma that's present within the cultures there and throughout the Middle East. And uh, it happens 
in Islamic countries, but I've even heard in other you know parts of Africa where it's Christian, where they where they do this. I just the idea that you would just disfigure someone's body like that. Just I remember reading that article with such horror. And the same thing happened to me with this, that when I learned that doctors were giving chemicals to children in pursuit of a physical impossibility, that of becoming the opposite sex, that would then arrest their natural puberty, which is a process that though it's not fun for anybody, we all need to go through it. And the signaling that happens in the brain and how it just sets in motion all of the developmental processes in the body, that that was being halted with drugs and then followed on with synthetic cross-sex hormones, and then perhaps even a cosmetic, medically unnecessary body disfiguring surgery. I just I just can't quite explain what happened to me. It was just something deeply visceral just went off. And I said, I somehow I have a job in journalism now. We need to address this for the moral and medical atrocity that it is. And thankfully I have really great editors who see this with clear-eyed uh, with a clear-eyed view, and they they agree, um, because this is a, a desecration of the human body. And as a Christian, I, I believe we're fearfully, one, fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. And so I, that's right, I not apologize for defending the integrity of the human body. You said two things I want to touch on because when you and I first met, we actually met in an event where you were talking about this issue quite passionately, and I knew that I really wanted to, to explore this more with you. Um, and one of the things that you said at that particular event was you, and you alluded to it just now in your answer, um, you talk about what puberty does to the body and why it's crucial that we not interrupt that process. Can you expand on that a little bit so that our listeners truly understand why this is such an evil. I mean, on so many levels it is, but truly what the body needs to do and why God designed it the way that he did, um, you know, we can't speak to why God did it, but I'm just saying that, that he put in a process that does certain things um, so that, that we develop at a certain rate. Sure, absolutely. Well, it begins, a lot of it begins in the brain. There's actually several stages of puberty. It happens in the womb and then as a very young child, but then the critical period of puberty that we're speaking of today is that hinge point between adolescence and adulthood when the signaling in the pituitary then sets in motion sexual development, brain development, skeletal development, your entire body is regulated by your endocrine system. And it's a very delicate ecosystem. Your hormones affect everything. And we know how the brain is showered by hormones and hormones, they, it, when I mean, one of the things that puberty blockers do is that they don't allow your bones to harden, like the calcium deposits that need to happen. That's a very critical thing that happens during puberty. Uh, sexual development where you, know, you start get hair in certain places and your genitals start to form. I mean, this is a very crucial window. You're in the case of boys, their voice deepens. Well, that's all set in motion by the signaling, the pubertal processes that happen in the body. And it is, it's a weird time. I mean, most young people sure. in their early teens and adolescence, it's not very much fun. They're it get the hormone levels are just sort of, it's a new thing and their body's changing and things start to smell and it's just, it's, it's a very strange process, but we all need to go through it. That's part of growing up. And um, it's, it's a wondrous thing when you just examine how the human body works and that there is this, even though it's not very much fun and it's puberty, it's a weird, weird time for many people to sort of adapt to as they come into their own 
sense of self, um, how all that happens. It's just, it's a very crucial process. It's not a disease, but it, right. it is, but it is treated as such Yes. in this experimental medicalization where when this protocol that is now being practiced widely throughout the United States, uh, European nations are backing away from this now, some of them are, but it was first pioneered in the Netherlands where the therapeutic idea was a gender dysphoric patient working with, I believe, a psychologist and an endocrinologist decided to use a drug called tryptorelin to halt these pubertal processes because the idea was that a dysphoric minor child was, that, that puberty was going to be too traumatic to endure. And so that you pause that to buy this child some time to then maybe decide, are they going to transition to become a facsimile of the opposite sex? That was, that's since become known as the Dutch protocol, but the results are disastrous and European nations, Sweden, the UK and Finland, and I believe France are now moving away from this protocol, but the United States and Canada, unfortunately are stomping on the gas. And there's been some pushback against it in various states, but the bottom line at the end of the day, Marie, is that puberty is not a disease. And as much as it may not be very pleasant to endure, it's something that everyone it's something that everyone has to go through. And for those who do indeed suffer with what has become known as gender dysphoria, what was previously known as gender identity disorder, puberty is kind of the cure because most young people who are genuinely distressed psychologically about their bodies, they grow out of it if given enough time. Uh, and so you don't introduce a hormonal agent uh, to a, a normal biological process and uh, gender confusion is not an endocrine disorder, but it becomes one when you introduce a hormone that wouldn't ordinarily be there. That's right. And there are a whole host of issues that are, uh, that come along with these medications that have not been studied uh, in long-term use, uh, nor have they been, many of them are off label. And so they have not been studied for off-label use uh, with minors. That's and right. so there's, we're going to be seeing, you know, like we see Camp Lejeune now that we kind of make fun of those or, or your car warranty or whatever. There are going to be lawsuits for decades from some of this stuff because we don't know what we're doing. That's right. And it's a sobering thing to see. I mean, I mean you hate to have to see the lawsuits be the, the effects of this, but I think that's probably what it's going to take. Um, and I'm, Concerned that though there are some proposals in various states about extending the statute of limitations for these kinds of things, especially if you were transed as a minor and you had no ability to give consent because we recognize that there are certain things that children cannot give consent to because they don't have the cognitive capacity to do so. It's it's sad that it's going to take seeing the carnage, the aftermath of this stuff when this should have and could have been prevented from happening in the first place. Uh, You mentioned Camp Lejeune, but what I find is that African-Americans, they know when the eugenics train is. As I know some, I had a a black lady that I know told me that, and they're very sensitive to this kind of experimental thing. And you don't just mess around with hormones. And most black people don't support this. They, They have a hard time believing that it's going on, but once they learn about it, I mean, I, and regardless of their politics, whether they're conservative or liberal, 
I, I know of a man who was actually in Texas who told me that as he was trying to push back against this, he had black Democrats walking up to him all the time saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this. This is so outrageous to do to children. Basically, this is a project that's mostly pushed around by rich white liberals. That's absolutely right. Well, and that's the case for a lot of things that we see all the whole the whole yeah. Marxist, uh, communist uh, origins of a lot of movements. Um, but you bring that up. And, and that's an important point. I mean, I think of the syphilis project and I think of um, Henrietta Lacks and some <clears throat> others uh, who were experimented upon and, and all of those kinds of things. So you're absolutely right. It is a, a civil rights issue. And I kind of want to address that because you mentioned <laughs> female genital mutilation. Um, there is uh, the Jeff Younger case. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, but uh, and also I, I, as we talk about uh, abortion and the unborn, I mean, when do females have the right to be able to say, I don't want this uh, female genital mutilation? Uh, when do kids have rights? The minors have rights to be able to say, I don't want this. Um, and the unborn, I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't have liberty and the pursuit of happiness if you don't have life. So, you know, um, it seems to me that there are groups of people, swaths of people whose rights are being trampled on in our pursuit of wokeness or whatever it is, um, self-actualization, I don't know. But uh, it seems like these are groups of people that that have rights and their rights are not being considered whatsoever. Well, and yes, and to your point about all those other issues that you mentioned, what I will say about this is that this is bringing people together from across the political spectrum. Yeah. So I, I, I'm sure we would probably agree about the starting points of rights and we would probably share the same anthropological foundations of what yes. it means to be human, about the, the dignity of the human person, born and unborn and all of that. But when, you, when it comes to this kind of uh, experimentation and the blockers and the hormones and the surgeries, a really a bright spot, a silver lining is that you see a broad swath of people from the left and the right together. Uh, you mentioned uh, the the lack of, I didn't answer this in your previous question, but I'll touch on it now. The off-label use of these drugs. Mm -hmm. FDA, we, we don't, you're, you're right that we don't have any long-term studies on this because mm -hmm. doctors weren't doing this on such a large scale just a few years yeah. ago. You don't even have the data. And what I've often seen held out as studies are these cross-sectional snapshots, not longitudinal studies where you measure these things across many years. And the, the studies and that aren't they by the clinics that are performing these surgeries? So, I mean, it seems like they have a financial incentive to say it's a good thing. Yeah, of course. And this is a big moneymaker. And that's yeah. been exposed recently at Vanderbilt when, when Matt Walsh got that yeah. footage of one of the doctors actually said this is a big moneymaker for our yeah. hospital. So there's there is. And these these drugs are very expensive, too, because if a child goes on blockers and hormones, you're going to be a medical patient for life. So somebody's making bank. And it behooves us to follow the money, especially as a journalist. It's like that really drives a lot of what's going on within the medical system, the medical industrial complex, pharmaceutical companies. It's not a conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat kind of question to ask, well, why, why would you just do this to an otherwise physically healthy child? I mean, somebody's benefiting from this and maybe we should ask who and why. Absolutely right. 
Part of the transgender debate um, is a debate over uh, parental rights, as it often becomes a question of if a a parent has a right or even Mm -hmm. a responsibility to prevent their child from doing something that may cause them harm, whether that be drinking liquor, getting a tattoo, or agreeing to have their genitals removed. Uh, My heart is breaking for little James Younger. Uh, yeah. And his father, Jeff, who has advocated so hard uh, on uh, his behalf. How do we settle and affirm the rights of parents? Well, I think fundamentally it's it has to be a recognition of the importance of the family unit, uh, but it also is important to recognize the fundamental integrity of the human body uh, as a whole functioning organism. Yeah. Uh it is really sad when you see situations like Jeff Younger and his case, and there are others like his where the parents are divided on this kind of experimental medicalization. One parent supports it. The other parent does not. The family courts then wedge themselves in between the parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. And because the standards of care have been written by activist groups that have infiltrated mainstream organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Endocrine Society, Pediatric Endocrine Society, which are now in full support of this kind of insanity, judges then defer to these supposed experts, and then they then fracture and crush families. So protecting parent parental rights is, is a very dicey thing, given the corruption of the professions, because there are so many influences that undermine parents that are trying to do the right thing for their child. Uh, It's really quite alarming and scary when you realize how many institutions are dead set against parents that do not want to abuse and permanently dismantle and disfigure and sterilize their own children. It's it's we've woken up inside of a nightmare. Uh, And I think many people are just so bewildered and horrified by that. They don't even know how to put words to it or admit to themselves that the truth is actually this unpleasant. And it's so terrible that they just prefer not to think about it. But meanwhile, countless children are being put through this meat grinder and, and families are suffering terribly. Transgender self-identification has increased 1600% in just two decades. What explains this tsunami of gender dysphoria among young people and how do we change that trajectory? You're certainly right that it has exploded and I'm actually surprised it's that low. I mean, that's that the figures that I've seen those those numbers as well. And um, in the UK, I think there was, it was measured that across approximately a decade referrals for gender identity issues to their uh, to their clinic over there increased over 4,000, 4,400 percent or something astronomical like wow. that. The Tavistock clinic over there in London has since been ordered to close and they are, as I mentioned earlier, backpedaling. They're they're moving away from this treatment protocol. So there's some positive momentum there. Uh, But you're correct that the condition of gender dysphoria used to almost exclusively affect young boys and it was vanishingly rare. And so what has happened Mm. in recent years has, it's what I believe a term was coined by public health researcher, Lisa Littman, who in 2018 published an article on Plus One Academic Journal. It was excoriated by trans activists where she found that an internet-fueled social peer contagion was just sucking (laughs) children left and right, mostly teen girls. And so so it used to be mostly young boys uh, that suffered from this. These teen girls are now the predominant demographic. 
that Littman study is the jumping off point of the watershed book from 2020 by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage. And so these girls come out as the opposite sex or some other gender identity in their friend groups. And it's this trendy hip thing furthered along by Tom yes. and all sorts of other social media sites. And so it's become the fad, the thing to do to the point where we're now seeing these staggering transgender identification rates. Again, predominantly among girls, but there are a number of teen boys being sucked into this as well. Um, and the brainwashing and the inculcation of this dogma in the schools is really where the gender clinic clientele and customer base is built. The, the, the schools are the first stop in the pipeline toward this experimental medicalization because that's where they're groomed into believing that they need these drugs and these surgeries in order to become their authentic selves or whatever. So you're seeing an industry market this kind of uh, solution to young, young people's real distress, but it's held out not only as a cure for their distress, but it's also an identity. And so that's a pretty lethal combo. And that I think explains the staggering growth in this identification. Well, and you're right that, that it's, it's now hitting a different demographic and it's become trendy. And I think the trendiness is part of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and as we've mentioned, adolescence is such a difficult time to begin with. Um, just that whole, I, I think, sense of belonging to something as, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, I mean, that's what they've talked about with gangs um, that, you know, uh, for people in certain communities that have not grown up with fathers or don't have a strong sense of family, it's a family unit. As corrupted as that might be, as strange as that might be, it soothes a need, uh, whether that need is um, presented accurately or not mm -hmm. um it, it it meets that need but also as you as you and i are seeing all of these drag queen story hour events and those kinds of things where parents are bringing their children and laughing and filming some of this stuff it appears to me that there's an attention seeking piece of it for the person who's doing it and it seems like there is um, that parents, by by filming all of this and making such a to do about it, are telegraphing a message to their kid that this is a way to get attention. That um, I will film you and I will support you in this because it's this cute thing, and you're getting attention and you're getting my time taking you to this event. That there are some things that it's almost negative reinforcement, if you will, that we're negatively reinforcing this behavior with a very vulnerable confusing time, as you mentioned, and then we're adding drugs to it, a cocktail of drugs that, you know, we don't know what that's doing to adolescent brains because we've talked about that they're sometimes off label. Mm. So it just seems like there's a confluence of events that right. we are just hammering over and over and over to the point where we may not be able to come back from that. I think you're correct about that because this is all part of a larger milieu where the, the same messages is being churned out. And that, that is to confuse children about their sex and to break down their boundaries. Whether you're talking about drag queen brunches in Plano, Texas, like that yeah. horrible video yes. that was posed by Blaze TV not so long ago, or any of these other events in the libraries or the indoctrination that's happening in the schools through anti-bullying lessons. It's often dressed up as something that it isn't, but the goal is to propagate confusion where there was no confusion before. 
most children can recognize the difference between the sexes when they're very young. And so to intentionally disrupt their reality testing abilities is, I think, one of the worst forms of child abuse because then they don't have the tools with which to engage the real world. You're, you're fundamentally interrupting a developmental process and calling it healthy development. Everything is inverted. So you see all these confusing things going on in places where previously it would have been in some club on the other side of the railroad tracks that, you know, I'm not a fan of any of that, but now to expose that to children and teach them that it's good and progressive and objectively true and a great way to express yourself. It's so exhibitionist and yes. horrific. And I, I think that's what really bothers me the most as I've been engaging. You asked me earlier about what was it that sort of set you off when you learned about blockers is sit. This is all part of a larger systematic exploitation of children. Well, and, and it's to it's to destroy the family. I think well, I, I think it really is. I think it's to break down the structure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But when you see children exploited and hurt, I'm sorry, you just get me hot under the collar. And that's as, right. And as a Christian, I must say that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't take too kindly when you hurt children. No. No. Trust me when I tell you, you know, Alan and West and I have talked. Alan West and I have talked about, uh, you know, hanging a millstone around oh. the neck and all of that. Kind of that was applicable. It's here. Oh, it is. It is. And here's the other thing that I don't understand because you mentioned the American Psychological Association. You know, my uh, background is in early childhood education. Mm. Studied uh, child psychology as a major in college, and also taught in, at the preschool level. Um, and I was a director for families. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, designing workshops to uh, address uh, issues relating to early childhood. So I know a little bit about this. Um, Mm -hmm. And one thing I know is that children engage in imaginary play and in fantasy until they're around six or seven um, because they cannot distinguish fantasy from reality. Um, they don't they don't move into concrete operations until they're around seven ish. Yeah. So they don't know that death is permanent. That's why sometimes you hear about a kid seeing a superhero and they think that they can fly and they go to the roof yeah. and, you know, they jump off and there's a tragedy because they don't understand, you right. know, or they they think if they see a death in the family, they think that grandma's going to come back or their dog is going to come back because they don't understand that it's permanent. And here we are. Yeah. As a society, affirming right. these roles for kids that that don't that that move back and forth between fantasy and reality, who right. don't have a, a fixed idea about things until they're much later than some of these kids that are going on blockers already. So, how can the American Psychological Association, knowing that, I mean, haven't we always heard that play is the work of children, that that's how they learn about the world by by I, identifying as all these different things? I mean, that's how you try on different personas until you know which one. Oh, this is me. This fits. This is right. This is what I want to do. I mean, all of the the things that I wanted to be as, as a kid, I didn't end up being as an adult. So that's the work of childhood to kind of figure that out as we're moving through these developmental stages as, as you addressed. So it, it perplexes me that a body of medical people who should know this are putting their uh, stamp of approval on this. That is among the most horrifying aspects to this is to see so many supposedly intelligent, credentialed, smart people cave into something that's so 
it's just it's lunacy that you would you would then affirm a child's delusion of something that is materially false and impossible. I mean, that it, it's could anything be more cruel than to lie to a child like this? I mean, I, I, I would just also say that it behooves everyone who's listening to start asking those questions. Yes. How, how is it that so many supposedly degreed professional people have gotten captured by this? What contributing factors, what happened to these professional organizations? Because I think most people, if they know their local doctor or their counselor, who's a great person, they have no grid that things could really be this corrupted. But again, I would reiterate, start looking at some of the money that has influenced these right. because I, when there are people that are truly evil and they have a lot of material resource and they can influence the direction where ideology governs instead of actual science and actual truth, you can do a lot of harm in a very short amount of time before people are even cognizant of it. And then by the time people do become aware of the extent of the corruption, the activists have moved the goalposts or they shift the conversation. And by the time you realize it's, it's so, it really is like falling down the rabbit hole. And there have been days when I've been reading things and it's just, it's, it's so hard to get a grip on reality because the language is manipulated. The, the words that they use are very slippery and, or then they'll call you crazy for pointing it out. Or why do you even care about this? And that just kind of perverse. Why do you care about a child's genitals? I mean, like they try to flip the script on you, make you think that yeah. you're weirdo. When really it's just, no, we think children should be able to be able to grow up normally. And if they have some genuine confusion, let's work through that and examine the sociological factors, or maybe there's something wrong in the home. Let's, let's generally look genuinely look out for their welfare. Nope. If they can, get a child on these drugs and medicalize them for life. There's an income stream there. There's a whole cottage industry that is, can surround a child and fast track him or her to this kind of experimentation. Uh, people have got to wake up. Well, and we're seeing these chat rooms that are set up where you can talk to someone in private um, about queer issues and those kinds of things um, because you need to have a trusted adult that you talk to that really, let's face it, are grooming grounds. Uh, really, when you look at some of these events, and um, we've talked about this on the show for the last several weeks, uh, we've shown some of these really disturbing videos where kids are touching the genitals of adults in costume um, and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And it, it turns out that many of these people have child pornography charges against them. Shockingly. That was um, and so, the drag queen story hour in Houston uh, a year or two ago. And there, there are others like it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And we were talking about that. And so doesn't that lend to another whole host of problems that here are these kids that are being groomed and sexualized and assaulted by some of these people. And so aren't we supposed to protect uh, our children? And yet we're putting them in situations uh, where they can be hurt. And we're talking, um, even though she backed off of it, the lawmaker that wanted to remove children from homes, uh, CPS, who didn't affirm 
their identity. Well, you know, I have adopted two children from foster care. I know what can happen in some foster care situations. We were really blessed, but you're adding fuel to already a difficult situation. People talk about, oh, well, these kids are at higher risk for suicide. They have a mental illness. Of course they have a higher risk for suicide. And you're just making it worse because now you're adding something that cannot be changed or cannot be easily rectified. You're making some permanent choices. We know of a girl that, that our kids grew up with who at 19 or 20 had a double mastectomy and a total hysterectomy. So at 19, 20, completely choice taken away from her, whether or not she's going to have kids. So whether she works through this issue or whether she doesn't, she's taken that off the table completely. Yeah. So uh, unless she adopts her. Sterilizing people become okay. Just because it's, I mean, it for, and I mean, this is not to remove a cancerous uterus or something like that, where it's. Do you like, remember when we talked about forced sterilizations of I mean, certain populations? I mean, seriously, it is. I mean, and again, the African American community gets yes. it. They yes, they know what it's like, and it's. And that happened a lot more recently than prisoners, female prisoners. I think were African American who were sterilized. Yes. Was it as recently as 1999 or 2000? I mean, what, I mean it's not that far off. It wasn't. It and, wasn't. There was a whole, uh, you know how they say uh, that Law and Order ripped from the headlines, the TV yeah. show? They had a whole show about uh, there was a clinic where women were be, uh, undesirables. Where yeah. have we heard that before? Margaret Sanger, right? Undesirables and weeds. That's us, Black Ameri- mm-hmm. uh, the Black community. Um, so and it was these girls that were getting into trouble in terms of, uh, that had uh, that were poverty stricken and uh, were being sexually abused or that were violent or that um, were on crime sprees or whatever, they were deemed um, to be too much trouble. And so they would go in for their just routine uh, appointment and would be sterilized. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's unconscionable um, that you would, uh, that this would be seen as healthcare or medical yeah. care or in any way of an ethical practice. Uh, it's that abortion it, is health care now. Well, it's true. That's what they say. This is so, but again, I would just say that I, I, I know some people, I, I'm a pro-life, I'm as pro-life as they come, Murray, but I'll tell you, this takes the cake even for, I know some people who are very supportive of abortion who see this stuff of getting yes. physically healthy body parts and, you know, administering blockers and hormones that render a person sterile you know, breasts cut off, uterus cut out, yes. male genitals amputated. This is bringing people to the end of themselves. That people used to think of transvestites or transsexuals, as they used to be called, as mostly on the margins, on the fringe, very rare, maybe down at Mardi Gras. You don't really think about them. You could go your whole life without even meeting one. Now, when they see this being pushed on children, this is causing people to re-examine everything that they thought they knew and believed in the people they could trust. I mean, parents call me and they're absolutely shattered. They had no idea that something like this could happen to their families. It's like a bomb goes off when it invades their home. Speaking of parents, you uh, one parent that you uh, mentioned in some of your writings is a Florida woman named January Little John. What can you tell us about her story? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, she is featured prominently in a few episodes, including the inaugural episode of my our new documentary style investigative podcast series called Generation Indoctrination, which you mentioned in your introduction. Uh, her case is sort of crystallizes some of the struggles that parents are going through because of the ways in which schools have embraced this dogma. Mm. 
her daughter during the height of the pandemic had experienced some gender confusion, confusion about her sex. And they were working with a mental health professional within their own family. But apparently her daughter had disclosed that, or I'm not exact, maybe January had said something. Somehow the school became aware of it. And the school officials, guidance counselor, and I believe a vice principal, and then a social worker that January had never met, had a secret meeting with their daughter behind their backs, where they filled out a gender support plan, as they are called, where they asked her which restroom she wanted to use at school and which sex she wanted to room with on overnight field trips. These are very critical decisions that could have very much impacted her daughter's safety and well-being while she was at school. And she's now filing a lawsuit because of the ways in which that school inappropriately intervened with her daughter. Uh, this is a total violation of parental rights, not only from a federal perspective, because the U.S. Constitution, the Supreme Court has held, there's a parental, a constitutional interest that parents have the primary say in how their children are raised, in the education of their children, the upbringing, the religious training, but also because January is from Florida, the Florida state constitution also guarantees this right. But this is actually happening across the country where schools are doing these kinds of really inappropriate interventions with students. And it's all couched in, we need to just protect students. Well, protect yes. students from what? The assumption is their parents who might not be supportive of this gender discordant identity. Um, it's, it is just staggering to see the arrogance. I mean, how dare schools take it upon themselves to act like this protector when parents know their children and love them the most and that such intervention should only be employed when a school sees extreme abuse and there is a legitimate, okay, this child needs to be protected because there's something truly terrible like molestation or something going on in the home. Barring that, it, schools have absolutely no right to be doing what they're doing in this space, but they're doing it actively. And I've even heard stories of guidance counselors looking up and making referrals to the local gender clinic during guidance counselor sessions. That's happening in this country right now, and it's outrageous. But January is one of the few parents who's standing up and saying no, and she's actually filing a federal lawsuit about it, and that is uh, pending right now. And what's crazy about that, and I've been saying this for the last few weeks here on the show, I wrote a blog post not too long ago about this. You know, if a child went to a guidance counselor and confided in them that there was something that they were doing with their friends in secret and they really needed their help because they were afraid of uh, talking right. to their parents about it. Um, what if they were studying the Bible and wanted to get baptized or become a Christian? Do you think that a guidance counselor would be making a support plan? to? Uh, talk to that parent about, oh, your child's been, child's been studying the Bible and their true self. They they want to get baptized and affirm this 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 studying that they've been doing. Tell me that how that never, works. ever, ever, ever happen, right? How that works. Only certain situations. No. Right, exactly. Look, here, 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 I am a Christian. And I'm unapologetic. I think it would be totally inappropriate for guidance counselors to hide that from. Yes. Like, and I, do I want to see young people come to know the Lord? Of course. Absolutely. It is inappropriate, no matter what, whether it's gender right. or the Christian face or anything, you do not violate the parent-child relationship. Schools have no right to do that. That is absolutely right. Now, there's a viral video that illustrates the dangers of biological boys being allowed to compete with girls. And we're going to show that uh, clip right now. Yeah. <laughs> 
There we see a North Carolina female volleyball player hit in the head by a spike so powerful that it left her with a concussion. Now, when you and I met, there was another panel where we talked about this, about uh, biological males competing in women's sports. Should biological men be banned from competing in women's sports? (sighs) The fact that we even have to ask that question is just outrageous. And, you know, I I almost feel like we need to stop saying biological males, though I know why people do it, because there there is only one kind. That's right. That biological males is redundant, but people say it to distinguish it from this trans concept because because of the confusion that has been sown into the public mind about this. No, we need single sex sports. Title IX has historically guaranteed that there be single sex sports. And the maddening part about this, Marie, is that this was all predicted. We knew this kind of thing would happen. Now, is it possible that injuries can happen even amongst, you know, single sex sports? Of course, there are sports injuries, but there's such a differential here because male bodies are stronger physically on average. There's just, there's an unbridgeable advantage that males acquire after they go through puberty. The puberty process confers more strength, more musculature, more speed, all that. And so then as what happened in that clip, you just see the degree of injury being so much greater because a male body is that much stronger. And that did not have to happen. That happened because of bad, insane policy that is related to this notion of a gender identity where someone can just identify their way into another sex, which is impossible. I mean, I, I, I just, I watch that stuff and I just seethe because it's just like, this didn't have to happen. That's right. This, this is just so outrageous. Then th- there was a few years ago that I think it was Fallon Fox and Tamika Brents, the, the boxer kind of thing. Yes. That, that was probably the first most biggest picture where, I mean, it's now okay for men to batter women. As yes. long as a man calls himself a female name. Isn't that interesting? Isn't yeah. that really interesting? And and the fact that we're erasing women, you know, you're talking about that, you know, there's so many different genders, but we're really erasing them because you think about it, all of uh, women's accomplishments are being replaced by these um, scores and, and, mm-hmm. and times and all these other, these records uh, that men are creating. And yeah. so true women are, are being erased from history. They're, they're being erased from the records books because these fake athletes um are are competing uh against women that are are male and so those records go away and and it's so weird because that again it goes back to i really believe that we are trying to deconstruct society black lives matter said that they wanted to disrupt the nuclear family Um, and that's really what this is about we disrupt all of these processes we disrupt human progression in terms of putting in puberty blockers to stop what God has designed to happen. Um, We do all of these artificial things and we are disrupting all of these processes so that we're disrupting the nuclear family. We're disrupting the uh, sports and we're erasing uh, females. We're erasing the whole construct of male and female and what it is to be male and female and chest feeding persons, persons Uh, capable of giving birth. What is that crap? That's crazy. It it really is. It's it's. There's nothing that this movement touches. It just doesn't destroy everything. It everything that this dogma touches it ruins it. 
and there it just smashes and destroys everything that's good and worth preserving. Uh, and it is sad that I think women, I mean, not to diminish the suffering of boys who go on these drugs or anything or men, because everybody suffers from this, but I, it's not a surprise to me that women are bearing the cruelest brunt of this. Um, we see the, obviously the higher numbers of teen girls that are sucked into this contagion and the medicalization that comes with it. Um, but their accomplishments, the sports arena is where it's most visibly seen. It's the clearest example. And I, I think that that swimmer, Will, Leah, Thomas, he was kind of a great gift because everybody saw that guy in his full male body posing as a woman. And I don't even believe he's gender dys dysphoric. I mean, I, uh, he, I, I, even if he is, it's not the girl's responsibility to deal with that. But he stood on that swimming block next to all those gals. Towering. The world was yes. able to see, okay, this is so insane. This is stupid. I, I know because I got phone calls saying that was that event that said, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. I can't, I, I've been a liberal all my life, but that's wrong. Um, and the so scary part about that is, you know, they're sharing intimate space with someone oh, yeah. who may or may not be confused. And decent um, exposure is so no whether, whether it's a male yeah. who's doing this and they're not confused and that's dangerous or someone who's suffering from a mental disorder and that's also dangerous. Um, but, you know, we know on college campuses in particular, there's so much underreported rape um, and uh, sexual assault. And here you are, you're putting males with females. Do not sexual assault survivors have rights. We talked about people who are undergoing female genital mutilization, mutilation, and we were talking about the rights of the unborn, and we are talking about the rights of minor child. What about the rights of, uh, of sexual assault survivors um, yeah. to be in a place where they're not triggered by the male anatomy, if the male anatomy still exists, or whether it's fake to yeah. put on someone. But yeah, I mean, we're erasing other people's rights. We're diminishing the rights of others to promote the rights of a very small percentage of people who until recently were diagnosed as mentally ill in the DSM-5. I mean, I think it's still in the DSM-5 actually. It is. Yeah. No, it, it, we are subverting reality in pursuit of insanity. And it is, I mean, and let me just say this too. There are people who, there, there's no class of people, as one of my feminist friends likes to say, there is no category of people for whom the sex of the body is irrelevant. Everyone is either male or female. Even if you have a disorder of sexual development, a chromosomal anomaly that's, that's strange, even those people are either male or female. They are males or females with those chromosomal uh, anomalies. Everybody's male or female. The sex of the body is relevant to everyone. But for those who are genuinely confused, of course, we want to treat those people with compassion, yes. help yes. them get counseling, help them grow. But we don't elevate that over the rights of usually women, because they're the ones who suffer disproportionately with this. But over the I know of a, I know of a woman whose son, it was women who walked into this on this little boy's bathroom and this little boy was traumatized. Like I don't want women in my space either. Yeah. It doesn't get talked about a lot because it's usually men perving on women in these spaces. But the truth of the matter is is like I would be very uncomfortable to be sharing a restroom with a woman. Yeah. And I wouldn't like that either. I mean, we need to we need to prioritize, I think, the rights of females in this space again because they're the ones that are the incursion of this ideology is so predatory and misogynistic and you know, they're, it, that's, it's just so wrong to see these people with fetishes 
you know, invade their accomplishments, their spaces, their rights, everything. So that has to take priority. But this is unacceptable for everyone. And the answer is so simple. I mean, to make a single use stall. I mean, you know, you you have separate yeah. spaces for everybody, but they don't want that because then then there's no agenda, right? Then the, then right. it's not being affirmed, and then it's a it, it's against the agenda that they're trying to support and normalize. Absolutely, right. Brandon. What is the Brush Fires Foundation? Well, I'm on the board of that group, and it's it's sort of more morphing into the Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit. Um, I it that's not related to my journalistic endeavors at the Christian Post per se, but um, I I am a believer that these issues, um, sexuality, gender, uh, sexual ethics, the human person, theological anthropology, to use an expensive phrase, um, these are of paramount importance to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his advance of his kingdom. Uh, we see such confusion abounding over what it means to be human. And so the Brush Fires Foundation, the Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit, is a nonprofit organization that seeks to reclaim the lost ground in society and minister to people who, and this is all of us, who experience some kind of uh, sexual brokenness. All of us are affected by the fall, theologically speaking. And so the redemption of the human body, that's what Christ came for. He laid down his body that we might be made whole through Christ. Um, so I see these issues not as secondary or tertiary doctrinal matters. These are of fundamental importance, like God made us male and female. You can't get Genesis 1 wrong without getting the whole gospel wrong. Yeah. And so we're, we're working in that space, trying to bring the hope of the gospel to extend to this difficult ground. Um, we're doing a lot of different projects. We put on the sexual we help put on the sexual integrity leadership conference, uh, which is a yearly thing. And it's um, stay tuned because we'll be, we will be making more noise. But uh, I think this is, these are some of the most touchy and difficult issues to engage in the public square, particularly from a gospel context, but Christ calls us to do that no matter how hard it is. And so I, I became passionate about those issues several years ago and that's now reflected in my reporting, but um, this is also where most of the pain is, I believe, in our culture. And so Jesus is in the, Jesus is in the business of healing. And so we want to be a conduit of his healing grace in this in this messy space. I think that's so important. I think you're so right, because I think the church doesn't talk about a lot of these issues, just like it doesn't talk about politics, you know, because they talk about, oh, well, Christians shouldn't be political. These are kingdom issues. Uh, the <laughs> nuclear family is a kingdom issue. God made the family. You know, he's the author of that. He's the author of marriage. Someone, people are taking his word and his institution of marriage and corrupting it into something else. Um, so these are kingdom issues. And I think the church does not talk about pornography enough. I don't think we talk about, um, you know, we, we make homosexuality to be such a huge sin. And yet we don't talk about two people who are of the opposite sex who are cohabitating um, or having a sexual relationship. And so we don't talk about purity in that way enough. We we make these big sins, little sins, and we don't talk about sin, sin, you know, any sin. We don't talk about um, some of the things that our, our kids view or, or, or our adults view. Um, and, and it's so accessible now on the internet and, um, you know, just a subscription on, on your TV or the internet or whatever. You can have apps on your phone. Um, and so it's so important that we talk about 
all of these issues uh, as they relate to us as fallen people. As you mentioned, we are all flawed. You know, we can talk about a lot of these issues that we've talked about today and we can say, you know, oh, well, that's a, a, a terrible sin to do this, this or that. We are all sinners and we are all in need of God's grace. That's absolutely right. And I, you know, I'm not up here and looking down on someone else. I mean, uh, being judgmental is a big sin. You know, there's a lot of sins that, that we're all guilty of, but it's the trying and the fact that we are redeemed, that God has given us this gift if we will just accept it and be obedient. And that's the thing, you know, people think that you can still live in these sins uh, because you're not supposed to judge and Jesus loved everybody. Well, those are true things. Jesus does love everyone, but he doesn't allow us to remain in our sins. He ate with sinners and prostitutes and all of those people, but he didn't allow them to remain in those sins. He said, go and sin no more. So you're right. We, we need to be talking about these issues a lot more. I think so. And I'll say, uh, I, I totally agree with, you know, uh, churches. I mean, there are some exceptions, of course, and God bless them. But these, these issues matter so much to the Lord. Um, and the one silver lining that I, I maybe said this a moment ago, but I'll say it again, is that when it comes to this medical abuse and this gender uh, issue where you literally seeing children being sterilized and cut up and, you know, disfigured, this is you know, church. You have a tremendous opportunity to reach out to a lot of hurting people. Yes. And I think that there have been some churches that have either they've not spoken as you were saying, or they've spoken very clumsily or in ways that were even hurtful to people who are really struggling. But you're going to find a lot of people who have never considered the gospel of Jesus Christ might be willing to give you a hearing because of the evil that they see. Some of the boldest voices that I know that are working in this arena are not Christians. They're atheists and they're agnostics and they're Jews and they're non-religious people because they see just how wrong this is. And so, yes, churches do have to do a better job speaking about a lot of these issues in general. Uh, and we have a glorious heritage to offer. I mean, the Song of Solomon celebrates godly sexuality. This is, we have, I think Christians don't even know what they have. They're ignorant of their own heritage. But um, I hope that sincere followers of Jesus can be bold truth tellers, yes, but also conduits of his great love for people in the midst of whatever it is their struggle is. Um, because I think now, again, with the atrocities that are being carried out, in these clinics and in these hospitals, there's an opportunity to reach out and say, look, Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, <laughs> the, your, your body is fundamentally good. It's, it is not Christian to hate your body. And if you, if we've ever conveyed that message, we need to repent from that because no, you are made male and female in God's image. But even if you don't believe in God, we are want to look want to look out for your health because we care about your welfare because this is an injustice and Christ. I mean, this is the ultimate social justice issue. I mean, to the protection of children from harm like this and from pharmaceutical companies and medical clinics that are going to profit handsomely from this. I mean, there's just no you can approach this from so many different angles, but churches do have to show the courage and the compassion to speak on this uh, without apology uh, because the truth is true no matter who says it and. Jesus said, you sh if you know the truth, it'll make you free. So please speak. <laughs> 
That's absolutely right. If you are just joining us, our guest today has been Brandon Showalter. He is a reporter at the Christian Post. Uh, Brandon, how do we continue to follow your work? And please do mention your YouTube channel. You're not bad. Well, we do have a YouTube channel at the Christian Post. Um, no, I'm talking about your. Well, mine. Oh, well, I've got. I just got a. Simple You're a life. singer. You're a I singer. Got a few music videos. That's what keeps me sane. Uh, I joke. My Twitter feed is at Brandon M Show, where you see a lot of my journalistic work. My Instagram is where I post music and food. I just keep that for some fun stuff. Facebook, I keep to friends only, just for my own reasons. But uh, my, again, my Twitter handle is at Brandon M Show. All of my reporting can be found at the Christian Post, ChristianPost.com. And again, I would urge everyone to listen to our documentary-style investigative podcast series called Generation Indoctrination: Inside the Transgender Battle. That's available at christianpost.com, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out. We're very proud of that series. Excellent. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you, Marie. It's a pleasure. And now we're at that part of the show where we bring in DK. DK, come on in. Hola. Hey, how are you doing? We're good. That was a great, two great interviews. So what'd you think of all that? It was interesting and very interesting, in fact, um, to hear Showalter talk about how he got started and what he called the rabbit hole of the trans movement. Yeah. I, I related to that because um, a few months ago, I did a, a blog on the trans uh, transgender movement. And like him, I was very startled by what I found when I started researching and how much of it seems to be directed at, at children. You're talking about this Disney character who cross-dresses called uh, Gonzarilla. This is um, from the, the show The Muppet Babies. So you're talking about a character who's aimed at three-year-olds, literally three-year-olds, not even wow. kids old enough for the real Gonzo. This is a Gonzo baby. And of course, the Gonzo baby, Gonzo is a transgender character. And like you mentioned, I, I still follow what's going on in the comic book world. And and this is one of the first things that attracted my attention was that one of the Amazonians from Demescura, where, of course, Wonder Woman is from, is one of the Amazonians is a, a transgender. So, and once you start going down the rabbit hole, you start seeing more and more things directed specifically at minors, not just comic books and kids shows. He's talking about TV shows, commercials, um, like every Disney show now, seems like they include at yeah. least one transgender character. No, it's interesting. I, I mean, kind of like with the guy in the women's locker room, can you imagine saying that you're transgender and being on the island with the Amazonians and Wonder Woman and all of that? I mean, <laughs> a guy on an island with just women? There'd be no benefit to that, right? No, it's not like it's not like uh, transgenders are necessarily homosexual. So a lot of these transgenders, they're looking around, believe me. <laughs> they're, they're noticing. Well, wasn't there a case recently where a guy wanted to, he identified as a woman and wanted rights to be in the women's locker room? And shockingly, there were some allegations of sexual abuse. Yeah, that or that he the... raped a woman. Yeah, didn't he? And then there was another guy that wanted to be put into a women's prison and women prisoners started showing up pregnant. I mean, yeah, I don't exactly. know. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Yeah, it's so obvious. But 
And it's something you and Brandon talked about, but a lot of it is, seems to be aimed at children and minors like these all-age drag shows and whatnot. And it's definitely, it's definitely on purpose. I don't know if drags or drag queens have a specific fetish for entertaining children or maybe they have an agenda for uh, propagandizing their their agenda to children. But I think we're normalizing it. I mean, that is the whole idea is to make this seem normal so that there are all different kinds of families, right? So when you grow up with that, I mean, it's just like, you know, when I talk about the stuff in the car with the kids, you know, I talk about, now I raise them well musically. So my kids know who the Beatles are, but I remember there were these kids that, that, um, lived with us for a little while and we were in the car with them. And this was like, you know, a few decades ago. And we were talking about the Bee Gees and the Beatles and like, who's that? You know, it's like, you know, you, you lose it after, you know, a generation or so. So kids are going to grow up thinking that this is normal behavior. I mean, my kids grew up like on blues clues and some of those kinds of shows and blue went to a pride parade recently, by the way. So it ain't my blues cruise blues clues that I grew up with, but what I'm saying is, or and it certainly isn't the Muppets that I grew up with, but I'm just saying, you know, you, you've got these characters now where it's cute. Kids want to dress up like them. They want to be like them. And it, it becomes a part of their vocabulary. It becomes a part of their consciousness that that that's how life works. And so you break down those stereotypes that, 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 the left says that we have, those aren't stereotypes. It's there for their protection because we are seeing that some of these people do not have um, good intentions where it comes to children. And so we're protecting these children, but they're trying to break down those barriers and make it where you should be able to go to trusted adults. What do you need to go into a private chat room with somebody? I mean, don't you watch Dateline? Don't you see Chris Hansen, you know, talking to a bunch of guys that are like, you know, beefy guys in like their fifties uh, or whatever, living in their mother's basement. And they're saying, Oh, you know, I look like Justin Bieber. Let's go meet at the mall. And you know, you go and you show up and there's this big hairy guy that, you know, it doesn't look anything like that picture. So I'm just saying, you know, it's, 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 it's all the things that we used to tell young girls about don't go places with people that you don't know. Don't talk in chat rooms to people that you don't know. And now we're doing all of these things um, that we would never have done. We would never have taken little boys to strip clubs, but we're taking little kids to these transgender, you know, drag queen story at the library. It's for little kids. It's, it's not just going to a bar, you know, with a sign that says 21 years and uh, older or whatever allowed but we're taking them to the library and we're reading them little books about little kids that are dressing up in across sexes. Yeah. And what concerns me more than the normalization of the trans agenda is how we're making the trans agenda, making trans people seem special. So showing these little kids that this trans woman, for example, is not just a normal person but this is a special person. When you have a whole crowd of people standing around the the drag queen, applauding the antics of the drag queen, it tells the children that this trans woman or trans man is somebody to emulate. So once you get these kids emulating the drag queens like they're movie stars or rappers or famous athletes, these kids want to be like that. 
And and once that happens, especially among kids who are maybe young teenagers and may start feeling sexual attraction to the same sex, and it's not enough to be wondering if am I going to grow up to be bisexual or grow up to be gay? Maybe I'm maybe I'm just in the wrong body. Maybe I'm not a gay man. Maybe I'm a woman. And you know the so. thing about that. That's a great point because you know when you hear about kids that have been sexually abused when they're young, you know I think about some of the things that we hear um, with priests in the Catholic Church. And uh, there's a band that I grew up with, um, and the manager was awful and did some pretty terrible things to some of the band members. Um, and so they did question their sexuality. Um, and it's because they, you know, associate now pleasure with these things because they were abused. It wasn't their fault. They were abused. And like you said, that caused confusion, um, with regard as their sexuality is developing. And so it's, your point is made because we talked a a few weeks ago about that 11 year old child who was going to be at a drag queen headlining a drag queen, um, event with their mother's blessing and that their, um, drag mentor had, child pornography charges. So, you know, we're, we're putting our children into places that are not safe and we're exposing them to people that are not safe and they're already confused. And we're adding, um, now situations where they can be abused. And we know that abuse survivors go through, uh, trauma And so we're adding all of this on there and we're supposed to be the adults. We're supposed to be the ones that keep our children safe. And as Brandon said, you know, people who are genuinely confused, um, it's just kind of like with this race thing, you know, you and I, as, as people who are, are black, you know, um, everything is racist. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. And I get offended by that because the true instances of racism get largely ignored. And so there are people who are genuinely conflicted and confused and those people need help. And so not only do we decrease the likelihood that they will get help, um, we've made it where, um, they may not get that help because we've, turn people against that whole movement because of what's going on with these kids. Um, and that some people are hurting kids. So we're making them pariahs so that if somebody really does reach out for help, they don't get the help. And so we're making everything exponentially worse. Right. Well, you mentioned race. So I want to make, want to turn this to a more uh, cheerful uh, the topic because our first guest, Mark Robinson, and here's the guy uh, from what I read in his, in his story, he seems like a pretty good guy. Maybe not the next Thomas Sowell, maybe he's not the next Alan West, but he he's, seems like a good man leaving a, a good life. And he's decided to stand up for his beliefs. And now he's the lieutenant governor. And it's interesting because you and I have known each other for a long time. And we started ACONS a very long time ago. And you probably remember the phrase we were hearing about the Republican Party back then was always, it's the party of the male, pale, and stale. Yes. So if you weren't an elderly white guy, 
you had no place in the GOP. And since then, we've seen Alan West. Hard to believe we didn't know who Alan West was back then when we started, but we met Alan West. We've seen the rise of Tim Scott. Uh, uh, we haven't met him yet, but we've seen the rise of Larry Elder. You see Winston Sears doing so well in her yes. state. Um, Burgess Owens, uh, Hispanics like Mark Robinson, not sorry, Hispanics like Maya Flores. And it's not just our country. You see the conservative movement elected uh, an Indian uh, whose parents were Indian. I, I can't call him Indian American because he's English, but <laughs> his parents are Indian. His name was uh, Rishi Sanuk, Sanak, who's now the prime, members, prime minister of England. And, and of course, we see a woman leading the conservative movement in Italy, um, Georgiana. What's her Georgia. Milana, I think. It's, Georgi it's Georgia? Georgia Maloney. Georgia Maloney, thank you very much. Your time is a little bit better. Than I took mine. I took a semester of Italian. <laughs> Georgia, it's G G I O R G I A. So, Georgia. I wish I could say it was because of us, but we were long for the ride at least. But the Republican yeah. Party and the conservative movement in this country and internationally has really done a great job in a short period of time of diversifying its members and, and we're sending our message out to a more diverse uh, electorate. So congratulations yeah, I mean, to Nikki them Haley, and to us. you got Nikki Haley, Christy Nome, uh, Kari Lake. I mean, you've got a lot of women here that are, are conservative. So yeah, that's a great point. Okay. And that's it for another episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Please like, Follow, share, subscribe, go to anchor.fm forward slash ACONS. You'll find buttons there for a lot of our podcasting platforms, or you can go to brightnews.com and follow us there. I'm Marie. I'm TK. See you next time.